Hello, story lovers. This is Laurel McCark, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. I have an apology to make. This short story you should have had in June, and today's the 1st of July, but we had no internet for the past couple of days because of fires in the area. And so here it is, 1st of July, your June short story for my wonderful Patreon supporters of $3 per month or more. And um, this is a short story contest I'm entering from Owl Canyon Press. It's a 50-paragraph short story. They provide the first paragraph and the last paragraph, and I just had to write the middle 48 paragraphs. So here goes. I hope you enjoy it. It's a little weird, but uh, if you've been listening to my short stories, you know that they are. (laughs) Um, The title of this one is called Crow Magnum. And crow is spelled C-R-O-W. So here goes, 50 paragraphs. No coverage, not even one bar. The battery was dead anyway. It was still daytime, but there was an overcast, and the sky had a perfectly even dullness, so there was no way to tell what time of day it was, much less which direction was north or south, or anything else for that matter. A two-lane blacktop road snaked up into the distance and disappeared into some trees, or a forest if you wanted to get technical about it. It also snaked down toward some lumpy hills and disappeared there as well. What sounded like a two-stroke chainsaw could be heard in the distance, but it was impossible to tell whether it was up in the forest or down in the lumpy hills. This had been happening more often lately. Two different ways to go, with a dead battery and no bars, and nobody left to blame. They sat at the T-intersection for several moments, both staring right and then left, and then right again before looking at one another. If they'd been scary movie fans, the whir of the chainsaw would have frightened them. But Ruby and Jade had grown up in a blue-collar neighborhood in Kentucky. Their father, John, had taught them how to wield even the most temperamental of power tools and how to handle the three fifty seven Magnum revolver they carried in their glove compartment. Still, the buzz of the chainsaw did nothing to relieve the monotony of the oppressive gloom. At least the soft glow from the pink 1959 Eldorado convertible offered a glimmer of cheerfulness. John had purchased the car for their 16th birthday, not knowing any other way to express his understanding of teenage girls after their mom had died of natural causes earlier that same year. Eighteen now, the girls laughed at their father's gaffe. He'd meant well, but they were so not pink car girls. They'd grown used to the jokes, the snickers, and the occasional sneers each time they'd drive west to the big city. They'd never tell their father about the extra unwanted attention they endured because of the car, and they'd never trade it in for something more suited to their personalities. It would break his heart. As identical twins, the girls wouldn't have caught the attention of Glamour magazine, but it didn't matter. Something about being identical twin girls always seemed to bring out the baser instincts in the men they encountered. They sensed it from the time they were quite young. Raven-haired and olive-skinned, fit and strong in a country girl sort of way, they did their best to hide their assets. But loose-fitting flannel shirts over denim cutoffs didn't do enough to deter the lewd glances, 
and they'd frequently have to stare down louts calling them Ellie Mae and Daisy and thinking they were being clever. The girls were not unfriendly, but they'd never had any serious relationships. They never felt the need. They continued to look at one another. There was no need to speak. Not every pair of twins can claim to have a psychic connection, but Ruby and Jade could. When they heard the caw and saw the crow flying overhead, they waited some more. The bird would show them which way to turn. It wasn't that they were superstitious, necessarily, but the crow, the same one they believed, had drifted around their home for days before their mother had given up her ghost and something about the way it followed them back from their first solo adventure to Mammoth Cave National Park told them they should pay attention. They were lost, and the crow's caw was like their mother scolding them from above for being so foolish. They had followed Ceres' navigational advice and should have questioned the decision when they found themselves on an unfamiliar road with no service on their phone just before it died. Their father had suggested printing out a paper copy of the directions just in case, but that was so old-fashioned, and besides, printing on paper was wasteful. As for their phone's battery, each thought the other had packed the backup charger. As psychically connected as they were, they often overlooked the small stuff, and the charge on a phone was small stuff. Like the pink El Dorado and other scant, pricey things they owned, Ruby and Jade shared one phone. It made sense, since they were always together, and to say they grew up instilled with the virtues of practicality and thrift would be an understatement. Their father worked long hours on a ranch, and their mother, Ayana, had taken the occasional odd job and maintained an immaculate household. She had taught her daughters how to stretch a meal and find designer clothes at bargain prices, not that the girls cared about fashion. She'd been a vibrant, attractive woman. Ayana's death remained a mystery. Her family doctor and countless specialists could not understand how the woman had gone from full vitality, never having experienced any noteworthy illness or injury in her lifetime, to a relentless decline over several months until her final day. Ayana had been the glue that held her community together, the one who had always time to listen to a concern, the mother of twins who had helped new mothers deal with discomfort and overcome fear. Her death had shaken the town and left her husband hopelessly distraught. Their neighbors were stunned, especially Ellen and Conroy, the older couple who had been like family from the time the girls were born. Childless, they were always eager to help when Ayana needed a hand or an extra pair of arms. A former chemistry professor turned dentist, Conroy was the go-to man for science and math homework challenges. Ellen dabbled at writing short stories, though she was never confident enough to share her work. Still, she was delighted whenever the twins had asked for advice on their essays. As the girls grew, there was never a significant event without Ellen and Conroy somewhere in the photos they'd peruse later. Being the more skeptical twin, Ruby had brought a couple of photos to her sister's attention years earlier. They were from their parents' anniversary party, and the photos in question showed Conroy looking at Ayana in a way that struck Ruby as being more than just friendly. 
An odd feeling of protectiveness toward her mother had washed over Ruby, and she thought the smile on Ellen's face looked forced in one of the photos. But Jade had told her sister not to be so critical and and accused her, as she often had, of acting like a weird sleuth. Their parents were besties, and that's all there was to it. And maybe Ellen was having one of her infamous gas attacks from visiting the cheese platter too many times. That had made Ruby laugh. While the crow flew overhead, seemingly undecided about which direction to fly, Ruby wondered why the memory of those photos suddenly popped into her head. She pulled over to the shoulder and killed the engine. Like the phone's dead battery, if they ran out of gas on their somewhat ill-fated drive home, they'd have no one to blame but themselves. Jade looked at her sister quizzically, but followed Ruby's gaze to the meandering bird above, and understood. They'd wait. The girls discussed Mammoth Cave, marveling at its expanse, and joked about what a great place it would be to hide a body. Truth be told, they each harbored weird sleuth tendencies and crushed on Benedict Cumberbatch. So what if he was more than twice their age? He was hot. No one could play a better Sherlock Holmes, and the girls had read the entire works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. None of their friends would play Clue with them, and who played board games anymore anyway? They did, and they often fell asleep at night, working through fabricated what-if scenarios. What if they accidentally consumed several THC-laced brownies at a party? What if they could fly just by thinking about it? What if they were kidnapped and knew there was no way they'd ever escape or be rescued? What if John wasn't their real father? What if they lost their vision? What if... They never ran out of scenarios, though they rarely solved any to their satisfaction. It was a fun way to fall asleep, and they'd share their vivid dreams in the morning. What if someone had killed their mother? It was a scenario neither had ever suggested, though the thought had plagued them. But who? Who would do such a thing? And how? And more importantly, why? Their mother was no saint. She'd often reminded the twins of that when they were younger, but she was a better person than most. The girls had heard that statement about their mother from more people than they could remember. Jade looked at Ruby, her brow furrowed, and asked what was wrong, even though she sensed what was in her sister's mind. For the past two years, neither of them could look at a crow without thinking of their mother's death. There was something about this crow's visit that seemed odd, and they both felt it. It wasn't a bad feeling, but it wasn't necessarily good, either. It was... different. Ruby raised her eyebrows and sighed. It appeared the crow was in no rush to leave this place, and neither girl could decide which direction to turn. The sound of the chainsaw ebbed and flowed with a misty breeze that had kicked up while they waited, and it was starting to grate on their nerves. For a moment, they considered closing the convertible rooftop, but the breeze felt good, and it was easier to see the crow with it open. They laughed joylessly about feeling like they were in a dentist office waiting room, hearing the buzz of the filling drill, and just the idea of it conjured the smell of burning tooth dust in the mist. It was creepy. Their own dentist was wonderful. She hired only the gentlest, most patient hygienist, but even in the most capable hands, sharp tools and drills on teeth were reason enough for elevated blood pressure and cold sweat. When they learned their neighbor Conroy was a dentist, the family had initially supported his practice for several years. 
His hygienist, however, was aggressive with her tools and suffered from a breathing problem. The family also suspected her vision wasn't the best. After much pleading from his wife and daughters, John took on the embarrassing task of telling Conroy he thought it would be best not to mix business with friendship. It went well, better than he'd expected even, and there were no hard feelings. To prove there were no hard feelings, Conroy insisted on supplying the family with monthly toothpaste refills, whitening formula for John, sensitive tooth formula for Ayana, and whatever the latest cool flavor was for the girls. They all had different oral hygiene needs. It was one less thing they'd have to pay for, and John knew Conroy's office got endless free samples. As if recalling the same teeth-cleaning experience simultaneously, Ruby and Jade started giggling and talking over one another about Clara, the horrible hygienist. Jade suggested it would be a great book title for a Stephen King-type story written for kids, Clara, the Horrible Hygienist. After they got over their giggles, shuddering from their memories of bleeding gums and fingernails broken on dentist chair armrests, they got serious again. And fidgety. It was then that Jade asked her sister why she thought Ellen and Conroy had stopped visiting after their mother's death. Sure, it was hard losing a best friend, but John had been their friend too, and what kind of friend abandons a friend in need? Within months of Ayanna's death, Ellen and Conroy put their house on the market and moved to the next town over. Conroy kept his practice, but they all knew there'd be no more weekly get-togethers and no more free toothpaste. The girls could make no sense of it. They felt abandoned, betrayed, and sad for their father. The crow startled them from their funk with another loud caw before descending toward them in a gentle spiral. They watched in awe as it landed on the hood of their Eldorado. Its shiny blackness contrasted stunningly against the pink paint in its sharp claws, clip-clopped tentatively as it circled the hood and released another cry into the flat gray sky. Soon, another crow answered and joined the first. Ruby and Jade looked from the bird to one another and back to the birds again, their eyebrows raised in disbelief. The birds hopped to the edge of the windshield and stared into the twins' eyes. Mesmerized, they stared back, and time seemed to stand still. The crow's obsidian eyes glowed and appeared to grow in size until the girls thought they might be enveloped by them. It felt electric and thrilling and safe. The girls sensed the birds required permission for their next move and gave it freely. They felt a tickling flutter of feathers on their cheeks before realizing the birds had flown to the tops of their heads, and they were not afraid. They felt the birds' sharp claws working their way through their thick hair and spreading across their scalps like those bizarre wiry head massages sold only on TV and at local discount stores. As if that were not surreal enough, when the claws stopped moving, holding fast on certain spots, the girls then experienced a fuzzy sort of tunnel vision. In this vision, a baseball-capped man was locking an outside door, perhaps to an office building. There was something familiar about the man, though they couldn't identify what. His face wasn't visible beneath the cap. He walked to his car, and after what seemed like a surreptitious glance around the empty parking lot, 
deposited a gym bag into his trunk, and drove away. The crows disengaged abruptly, leaving the girls wondering what had just happened, and hopped back onto the windshield. With one final gaze into the girls' eyes, they took flight and soared side by side down toward the lumpy hills. Ruby and Jade knew this was their cue to follow. They finally had a direction to turn, even if the decision had been made by crows. A brilliant beam of setting sunlight broke through the overcast ahead of them, briefly illuminating the birds and suggesting they had made the right decision to turn left. It felt good to escape the incessant whine of the chainsaw. The crows were never out of sight as the girls followed, and within an hour familiar landmarks appeared. When Jade pointed out a road ahead that would take them home, Ruby turned on her blinker, but the birds remained on a straight path beyond the turnoff. Although they were more than ready to go home after their bonus adventure, they both agreed to follow the flight of their new feathered friends, at least until they had to refuel. If the birds then decided to continue on without them, well, they'd have to write off the bizarre experience to being hyper-suggestible because they were overtired. Several miles down the road, Ruby followed the crows as they flew toward the next town over from their own. It was the town where Ellen and Conroy had moved, though they'd never invited their old friends over to visit. Twenty minutes later, the crows slowed and circled over the top of a house at the end of a long, sparsely populated road. In the driveway sat the car the girls had seen in the crow-induced tunnel vision, but what did it mean? After discussing the fact that a 1959 pink Eldorado convertible would stand out like a six-foot-tall redhead in China, they decided to turn around and park farther down the street away from the mysterious house. With the overcast settling as dusk descended, they wouldn't be so obvious. The birds seemed to approve of their decision. They landed on the hood of the car again and hopped to the top of the windshield. When they locked eyes with the girls as they had before, Ruby and Jade knew what was coming next, a flutter of feathers and a perch upon their heads. This time, the visions they relayed were horrifying. Like Odin's ravens, Hugin and Munin, the crows relayed the thoughts and memories of the man in the house to the twins. It was Conroy, and he was alone. He was pouring himself a generous double of Jameson and seething over his wife's betrayal. She'd left him recently, and he'd never forgive her. She was just like all women, he decided. Maybe he'd find a way to do to her what he'd done to Ayana. But he couldn't use the toothpaste. No, that would be too obvious. The girl stifled a scream simultaneously and grabbed hands, startling the crows from their perch and back onto the windshield, where they waited for the girls to settle down. They'd wait for many minutes while Ruby and Jade stared at one another before bursting into discussion about the brief vision. Conroy? What had he done? Had Ruby been right about what she'd seen in the photos? Had their friendly neighbor killed their mother? The girls turned back to the birds and demanded to know more. They promised to remain calm, regardless of whatever visions might follow. The next vision was from Conroy's memory, and they could see their mother through his eyes, his longing, fantasizing eyes. 
They could hear his internal dialogue, his incessant questioning of himself about what he should say to Ayana to make her realize she should be with him, a successful doctor, and not with her sweaty ranch hand of a husband. But she never seemed to pick up on his suggestive glances, his subtle touches, his willingness to show up at her house for whatever she needed on a moment's notice. And so, if he couldn't have her, then no one should. Certainly not the inferior man who'd gotten her pregnant with twins. While the twins experienced his memories, they realized he was deranged. They watched as Conroy formulated his plan years ago when he finally accepted Ayana would not leave her husband and run away with him. It was a simple, brilliant plan. All he had to do was add a little something to the sensitive teeth formula tube he routinely delivered with a smile along with the others. Ayana was the only one in the household who used that formula, so there'd be no chance of harming John, though he didn't care about him, or one of the girls. Hurting the twins would be wrong. They were still too young to break a man's heart. Once he had the toothpaste tube crimper... The rest was easy. He'd start by adding just a bit of his concoction to the paste, and once she started exhibiting signs of illness, he'd increase the amount slowly with each new tube. No one would think to test for his newly fabricated chemical, and she'd eventually succumb to the poison. Conroy congratulated himself for his brilliance, though the girls felt a touch of sorrow in his memory of Ayana's funeral. He wasn't sorry she had died. He was sorry she hadn't been smart enough to see how much better her life would have been with him. Conroy's memories jumped to his present thoughts, and if the girls could have seen themselves, they'd have giggled at their eyelids fluttering as fast as the crow's hearts were beating. But what they saw was no laughing matter. He was preparing to find his ex-wife and relieve her of her senses. She'd been stupid to leave him, and he was convinced she was finally ready to share her first story with the police. He needed to act quickly. Conroy believed that since no one had figured out how he'd killed Ayana, he was invincible. And after Ellen was gone, he'd take a nice long vacation overseas before coming back to find other stupid women in relationships with men beneath them. He'd relieve those women of their burdensome lives as well. He wouldn't have to rush those, though. He could euthanize them at his leisure. After all, who wouldn't trust a kind-hearted old dentist generous with free toothpaste handouts? No one would ever find out. But the crows knew what he'd done, and so now did the girls. What the birds planted in their minds was startling. It was also thrilling. A new kind of justice was in sight, and the twins were being asked to make a decision about their involvement. There was no time to question why the crows had waited more than two years to show them the truth. Conroy was readying himself to leave his house. Perhaps the birds knew the girls had needed time to mature and harden their emotions. Perhaps they wanted to ensure the girls were up for the tasks ahead, the ones that would follow this grim task. It didn't matter. Right now, the girls sensed a turning point in their lives. They could drive away right now. They could shake the crows from their hair, raise the roof of their pink convertible, and drive away. 
They could stop by their favorite pizza place and pretend like nothing unusual had happened that day. Their mammoth cave excursion had gone as planned, and aside from taking a wrong turn, everything was just fine. They could go home, recharge their phone, toss a road atlas in the back seat, and finish their college application packets. Or they could do what the crows suggested. Was there really a choice? Could they let their mother's murderer walk free, knowing he was on his way to kill again? If they called the police right now, but they couldn't, dead battery, what would they even say? There was no way the police would believe the story of how their mother had died or how they believed the well-respected dentist was on his way to kill his ex-wife. They'd want answers. They'd want to know how they knew what they claimed to know. And what would they say? The crows told them so? Their decision was clear. They'd wait until Conroy came outside and then... And then what? Oh, yes, and then they'd relieve him of his senses. But how? The street was quiet, dusk was disappearing to darkness, and the closest house wasn't close at all. Ruby had the steadier hand, and the three fifty seven Magnum was within easy reach. And then they'd go home and recharge their phone. The birds disengaged and flew to the hood of the car. Jade opened the glove compartment, checked the cylinder to ensure it was loaded, and handed the gun to her sister. Both girls got out of the car and took slow steps toward the house. Ruby let the handgun hang by her side. Beads of sweat gathered on their foreheads and under their arms. The only place they'd fired their weapon in past years had been on a range, and neither girl felt certain they could aim their weapon at a breathing human, much less pull the trigger. But Conroy had poisoned their mother, pretending all the while he was concerned about her gradual demise, and he was opening his front door. The girl stopped at the end of his driveway and waited for him to see them. When he did, he jumped back, nearly tumbled over a shrub, and let out a high-pitched exclamation. He squinted in the darkness toward them, and when he recognized them, he opened his arms and told them what a lovely surprise it was they'd come to visit him. He dropped his arms when Ruby raised hers. The girls took turns, telling him what they'd learned about his schemes, past and present, though they didn't reveal their sources. They asked him why. Why had he done such an unforgivable thing? But they didn't need his answer. He tried to reason with them. Surely they couldn't kill an old friend. They weren't murderers. And he would reform. He promised. He would go to the police and turn himself in tomorrow. There was just something very important he had to do tonight. He was an important man, after all, and didn't they know that? For a moment, Ruby wavered. He had a point. They weren't murderers. And could she truly pull the trigger on an old friend? But just as she was lowering her weapon, one of the crows settled back onto her head and showed her the thoughts streaming through Conroy's mind in real time. He was laughing inside. He knew neither of the twins could harm him. They were stupid, scared girls. He could see it on their faces and in the dark sweat stains on their shirts. He'd send them home believing his promise. He'd carry out his plan for his ex-wife and he'd be on the next flight to the Netherlands. His passport was secure in his pocket and bags already loaded. They were stupid girls, as stupid as their mother had been. Ruby raised her weapon back up. It would be an easy shot to the heart at less than 20 feet. Could she kill him? Of course she could. 
This was not some kindly old neighbor. This was a deceptive, evil man who'd planned and executed a brilliant murder without regard for the other lives he'd destroyed or remorse for what he'd done. Conroy looked like he was ready to bolt, and as Ruby's finger moved toward the trigger, the crow stopped her with a vision and an offer. Yes, she could pull the trigger. She had made the decision she was ready to and wanted to. But the crow's plan was stunning. Without needing to be told, Jade understood what was about to happen, and the words, fire when ready, flashed in her mind. One of the crows flew to Conroy, threatening him from above with a raucous caw that sounded more to the girls like, kill. And while Conroy raised his arms to bat it away, the crow on Ruby's head disengaged. The girls watched as it flew high into the darkening sky until it nearly disappeared before returning like a missile. Just before impacting the place Ruby's bullet would have pierced, its sharp beak lengthened and its feathers transformed into segmented articulating armor spreading down to protect the bird's body just before impact. The expression on Conroy's face before he hit the ground was one the girls would never forget, one mixed with disgust, contempt, and utter disbelief. The next morning... Conroy's mail deliverer called the police after seeing the old man on the ground. He was at a loss for how to describe the wound he saw, saying only that there was a really big hole through his heart from front to back. When the police and coroner arrived, they too were confused. One of them commented on several stray crow tail feathers near the body, one even stuck to an exposed, shattered rib— but they all knew there had been an unusual influx of crows in town that year. When an officer found vials of mysterious liquid in an abundance of travel-sized toothpaste tubes in a gym bag in Conroy's trunk, they knew they were onto something. They just didn't know what. The twins woke to a hubbub outside their front door. Reporters had gotten wind of a story connecting the dead dentist to John's family. After filling their dad in on their Mammoth Cave adventure the previous night, Ruby and Jade had mentioned they'd heard something on the radio about a police investigation and their old neighbor Conroy, something about the police wanting to talk with anyone who'd known or been a patient of the dentist. The girls wanted to ensure he'd be prepared for the media, though they'd never tell him about their involvement in the killing of their mother's murderer. As they opened their front door... A realization hit them at the same time as it often had in the past. There were more vicious criminals out there awaiting justice, and the girls had to make a decision about their own futures. Would their lives be guided by feathered creatures that, for whatever reason, sought them out and showed them the truth? Or would they go to college, major in animal husbandry, and put this crazy experience behind them? They didn't have to speak. They didn't even have to nod at one another. They were hunters now, and their life's mission was clear. They would dole out a new kind of justice in a world controlled by those who thought they were too clever to get caught after committing heinous crimes against humanity. Their lives would not be easy, and it was likely they'd never marry, but for now that sacrifice seemed minor. They'd keep their eyes to the sky and await their next mission. They wouldn't have to wait long. They made their way through the crowd and back to the El Dorado. 
and as they approached it, a crow flew directly over their heads and landed on the hood and then looked at them. They stood some distance away and watched the crow watching them. Another crow flew directly overhead and landed beside it. The first crow squawked, and then both flew away. They watched the crows disappear, looked at one another, and then got in the El Dorado. Only one way to go this time, with five bars and full battery. That ends my 50-paragraph short story, Crow Magnum. I would love to know what you think about it. That first paragraph and the last paragraph were the ones that I had to fill in between. Yeah, I went to weird places with my crows and my twins and my pink El Dorado. <laughs> I hope you like the story and I hope you will convince some of your friends to support me on Patreon. And you know how to do it. You can tell them how to do it. And I really appreciate you all so much. I've got another short story for July. It'll be a flash fiction one. It's part of a flash fiction contest that I'm doing. So that will you'll get that uh, toward the end of July, um, probably like the third week of July. You'll get your fifth short story for your support. I thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful new month. Bye.